Welcome guests, locations, church online. We're glad to have you. Come on, church, let's celebrate and welcome everybody that's with us today. Thank you, team. I got a word from God. He gave it to me quick. He gave it to me fast. And he gave it to me urgently. So I'm ready to get right into that. I'm not going to waste time as I organize myself up here. Um, but let me just really quickly, a couple quick thoughts I want to throw it at you. Uh, first of all, we are still taking applications for our Fresh Life Leadership College for our fall semester. And we're having a preview day on May 12th. So if you want to see what is a day in the life of, check that out. There's information there on the screen. Uh, freshlife.church, our college, we're able to offer a number of different degrees that can benefit you serving God within the walls of the local church, be it this church or another church one day. Uh, or in marketplace ministry or something in between, some nonprofit sector. And we're just really excited about what you'll learn in the midst of serving God alongside our church and staff and team as we do all that we're doing here at the church. And as you learn in the midst of that environment, much like a teaching hospital, where you're getting to apply in real time in a fast-paced, uh, multi-state, nationally and internationally reaching ministry, as you get to serve God in the middle of the blood and guts and thick of it. And then... Whether you take that back uh, to uh, where you serve God or somewhere he'll call you, be that somewhere around the world, or you end up uh, moving through the ranks of our leadership pipeline as we, of course, now have an internship and a residency and end up perhaps some of you coming on staff. We do welcome you in all across the country as you listen to this on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and you consider uh, what does God have for me? I just feel like something uh, is stirring up, not here or here so much, it's right here. Um, then we would welcome you in. You can get your application in. Uh, secondarily, secondly, number two, <laughs> numero dos, uh, Easter is next week. And that's awesome. And we are excited about that. Resurrection Sunday, the chance to talk about the power that Jesus has over death and hell and the grave. And uh, of course, to consider his sacrifice on the cross. So we're having two different worship experiences, completely different messages. I'm really excited because God already gave me both of them. And they are, I'm, I'm, sitting, I'm sitting high in the saddle because I'm fired up on these words that God gave me. And uh, Jenny and I had a plane the other day. And I don't know if the Holy Spirit got on in, at the beginning or the middle of the flight, but he was there. I, like, I got off this plane with five different sermons. And I've never been so happy in my entire life. <laughs> And a couple series. We have a lot. There's, God's given me so much. We're going to be, of course, he can change his mind. And he does that sometimes. But preaching throughout uh, the summer and fall, I'm excited about what God's going to do in the life of our church in the coming days. Excited about it very much. Um, yeah, you can be too. I welcome you in. Um, so Easter, Good Friday. We'll be taking communion Good Friday. That's really cool. And. Um, both of these represent monumental opportunities to think about and consider carefully who in your life could benefit from an invitation to attend a service that could change their life forever. And I don't take it lightly or uh, say it flippantly that you ought to think about who you work alongside, who you'll cross paths with. Um, but there are hurting people out there. There are hurting people out there. And to think about what you can do to say, hey, I'd love to bring you as my guest into our church, where you can be certain that we will pray and carefully think about what we do to present Jesus to them, and that we'll give them a chance to make a decision for Christ. And we have seen God so faithfully respond uh, in people's lives over the years of our church, 15 uh, years that we've been going towards Easter, saying, let's, let's make this all about the person who doesn't know him. 
And, uh, and that's a partnership. You can be sure I have been. We will be preparing and planning and, pre- and, and putting on the, the, the finest worship experience we, we can. And, and knowing that it's also up to you to do the job of bringing, to do the job of inviting. And then, of course, there's the, then we leave it all to the Holy Spirit and we go base jumping for Jesus, y'all. That's the, that's the beauty of it all. What would be a heartbreaking disappointment to me would be just people coming to church like for a little blessing so they can go on their day and have their little you know, Easter egg hunt with, with their family. And sure, isn't that neat that Jesus came out of that grave like Punxsutawney Phil, you know, like. <laughs> that's not how I want to live. I want to live with us fighting tooth and claw, hammer and tongs for those who don't know Jesus or have been gone for a while and need to have that love rekindled. So may God bless us all with eyes to see and ears to hear who he would have us to be a part of playing. You know, and you think, oh, they wouldn't want to come. And then, you know, you actually step on faith. And you're like, crap, they did. <laughs> now you caught the car. What are you going to do with it? Title of my message is Getting Rid of Jesus. Shifting gears unnaturally. <laughs> Getting Rid of Jesus. That's the sermon title today. Luke chapter <clears throat> 22 is where we're going to be. It's interesting how many times the formula of going into the past and fiddling with something and then traveling to the future to see how much you broke it, because what you thought would make it better actually made it worse, is like what we see in the movies. Of course, we we saw it in Christmas Carol. We've seen that played out a million times, right? Like, here's the Christmas past. Here's the past. Here's the the future. Here's what it could be. Here's what it it will be. And, And Family Man, Nicolas Cage, same thing. Like, we think about, you know, Tenet and uh, Inception, you think about changing stuff. You think about, about, about monkeying with stuff. And, 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 and now my mom's married to Biff, and what am I supposed to do about it? And I thought having the winning ticket would be awesome. It turns out it wasn't. And, 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 and all these things that we can, well, this, this did this. And here's the, the hurricane that came from the butterfly wings over, over here. I was, I was spending some time thinking about this sermon, and I just started to wonder what would the world look like had there never been a Jesus? What would a world, what would 2022 in our life, in our country, you know, what year would it be? What, what, literally, literally, I'm asking, what year would it be? I mean, we measure time based on Jesus's coming. So even just something as simple as like writing the date, well, what, how are we going to measure time? It's not going to be on the birth of Christ. It's not going to be on the year of our Lord. So how are we going to measure? And what other impacts, if any, would there be? Uh, like something as simple as like when you get sick, what hospital would you go to? Those of you watching Church Online, you're going to go to St. Thomas, St. Luke, St. Joseph, St. Mary, Sacred Heart, which hospital? And the disaster relief that we count on, like, well, I'm going to make my donation when there's a big event. Are you going to give it to the Red Cross? And, and even like your children's education. My whole life, I've been saving for my kids' college fund. Like, I really want them. But you're not, they can't go to Princeton. They can't go to Yale. They can't go to Harvard. Right? You're like, I can't afford that anyway. I know. It's an illustration. But all those colleges and many of the Ivy League schools in our country were started by ministries with the explicit intention of training up young people for the work of ministry in the world. So what would a world be? What would life be without Jesus? Because that seems to be where our culture is saying, we need to be going. And I think, sadly, at times, the church is a little quiet about it because we're not so sure if they don't have a point. Church is bad. 
Salem witch trials. Don't you know there was a time in the world when the Christians did some really terrible things? Hey, you don't need to quit talking about the Salem witch trials. There's Christians that do really stupid things every day. <laughs> and every new time, like, well, this Christian fell. Well, this pastor fell. Well, this leader fell. Proving once and for all, well, you know, we ought to just get rid of Christianity. There shouldn't be, there shouldn't be a church because there's a guy who did something dumb. There's a woman who's a sinner. And, and, and here, here, here we go. You, you, you might not like it, though, this dystopian future, this fantasy world. If there was no church, if there was no Christian, because religion is this big evil and it just divides. And you know, during the pandemic, churches got really, really interested in politics and all on this ticket, all on that ticket, all on this. Vaccine is awful. Vaccine is awesome. Or do, do you don't care about black people? Well, you don't care about any people. And, and, and the old, and then the young, and then the, so therefore the church then is just so politicky and so bad for the culture and bad for the world. And we're just like, well, I don't really even know, because yeah, everyone's against it, but then we get to our dystopian future full of storage units and weed shops, and we may not like and enjoy the country and the life and the world. We wake up in one day. What would a world be like without Jesus? What if we could go in the past and get rid of Jesus? What would life be like? I wrote down some names of people whose uh, impact we celebrate in the world, even though we don't even realize it, that wouldn't be a thing were it not for Christ. First name I wrote down was Florence Nightingale, 17 years old. Feels a call from God to do something that wasn't like a thing that was people were doing, called being a nurse. Can God call someone to be a nurse? Well, she sure felt if in order for her to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, she needed to give her life serving patients and doctors alike at her own personal expense and sacrifice to help people, to be there for them in those precious moments. In her footsteps, untold millions have followed, not just as nurses or doctors, but also chaplains who serve in hospitals, people who show up and pray, people who show up and care, people who show up in Jesus' name and offer aid and offer assistance. It's an interesting thing when you go back to the pre-Christ time, when you go back to the pagan world, when you go back to ancient days, there wasn't a real huge emphasis on humanitarian work. In fact, gods were never known for their kindness, right? Zeus was known for a lot of things, but not like he's such a warm, loving, kind father. And so there was not this big sense of like, we need to fight for the afflicted and the persecuted and the at risk and the marginalized and the stranger. This is why Jesus' message of compassion and caring and love rang such a bell and such a chord and why after his shocking death and his unexpected resurrection and then his ascension to heaven where he sent his spirit to fill the hearts of his followers has always rang such a chord for people. Because in the Roman Empire, if you had a boy and then you had a girl, but you wanted another boy, you would simply toss the child out. Or if your baby was disfigured in any way and you didn't find that convenient, you literally would practice what was a known thing that is called infanticide. You would just toss the baby out. And do you know who, who roamed the streets at dark trying to get ahead of the wild feral dogs? It was the Christians. It was the Christians who would rescue these babies. And when plague swept through the Roman Empire and people were dying, and if you were a hopeless Roman, uh, believing in the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods who were capricious, you felt like it was somehow on your family member who died of the plague, 
So you just needed to get them out of the house. They would toss them out of the house. They would flee the city, not care for those who were dying. And it was the Christians who at their own personal expense and risk would fight for and care for and tenderly appreciate. It was the Christians who subverted the empire by their love, by their kindness, by, by adherence to Jesus. Because you can kill me. You can take my life. But he rose from the dead. He changed my life. And he sent me on mission to love and to care and to so the entire idea of, of, of humanitarian aid, of, of, of hospitals, that was not a thing. There wasn't like great health care. Martin Luther, John Calvin, other reformers, they were the ones who pushed for universal education so people could be funded by taxpayers, educated, and change their lot in life. And you could have this ability, this superpower to gasp, learn how to read. It, it, was, it, was, it was Christianity as it swept through the Roman Empire within a few hundred years that really upended the practice of slavery in the empire. At the time of Christ, something of 40% of the empire was slaves. And just a few hundred years as Christianity rippled around the world, it's down as low as 15%. What would the world be like without Jesus? Well, we're, we're talking about a very different place to live. I don't think any of us would actually want to live there to think about William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist, who in the name of Jesus made it the cause of his life to end the slave trade. You think about the self-contradictory life and, 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 and leadership of Thomas Jefferson, who wrote of inalienable truths. God created all, and they had these rights. And freedom for, for everybody is what he was, liberty, the pursuit of happiness for all, this shocking idea. Well, America would still be great. Would there be an America? Would the pilgrims have come here to escape the harsh religious oppression they were feeling in England? You have to think about Abraham Lincoln, who actually brought to life for all the actual truths that Jefferson wrote about, but was certainly not living in his day. And you have Jefferson, this touched by Jesus. Look into his life. Look into what he believed about the Bible. Look into. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., a minister, an imperfect person, but based on his understanding of what Jesus led, the way Jesus taught, these things have changed the world for good and not just for evil. Just even think about a world without John 3.16, a world without Billy Graham, a world without the Tim Tebow Foundation, a global prom for those with special needs where we can say to them, you matter, you have worth. The world might not see that, but you do because God put it in you. And we're going to celebrate that about you. To think of a life without Jesus, well, we'd have some big bills to pay if there were in America. And if somehow we did figure out to call it 2022, the estimated toll on the United States government if the Church of Jesus Christ instantly vanished overnight is something like as high as $2.76 trillion. And that's just talking about actual dollars flowing from churches to support nonprofit organizations, many of whom are faith-based. 50 of the largest United States organizations that do humanitarian work in this country alone, 20 of them are faith-based. And the amount of money that flows from churches like ours to make sure that there's a bed at a place called a Good Samaritan, which we're going to have to find new words for this all, because the Good Samaritan, that all came from Jesus. And someone can't be a prodigal son, right? Most of Shakespeare's work is going to have to go back because he pulled so much from the King James Bible. All right, we're going to have to fix a lot of stuff. That's, and it, but just here's a fun one. Who else can you pull out 
from the story of the past that makes such shockwaves in the future. Try it. Okay, this person never existed. How, how different is the world? And yet this random carpenter made fun of and ridiculed who lives his life saying things that flew in the face of everything that was being said by the religious institution of his day, hardly travels even more than 100 miles from where he was born. And yet today, we think about what life would be like on this planet had he never been born. He's more than a carpenter, as it has been said. And if this, if this fascinates your mind, I spent a good portion of this week reading a book by a man named Jeremiah Johnston. Because I, I spent so much time thinking about it, I Googled it and found out someone wrote a book about it. So I was like, oh, that could be a good. <sighs> Jeremiah Johnston got to it. So the book is unimaginable. And he asks the question, what if Christianity uh, never existed, basically, and plays this all out in a fascinating way. And so if that uh, whets your appetite, check it out. But the reason I, I, I go down this journey with you is because we are going to meet three different people in Luke's gospel who, in fact, make it their goal to get rid of Jesus. That's their intention. So let's start in Luke 22, verse 63. Of course, if you've been following with us in this series, The Way of Suffering, which is available uh, for free on the internet. You can listen to the, the past messages. We've seen Jesus uh, give his messages to all of the discourse, speak to his disciples, and then travel to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is betrayed by one of his own. And uh, all of his disciples abandoned him. Peter first makes a quick mess, one last mess for Jesus to fix and mop up uh, before uh, they all abandon him. But eventually, they all, as, prophes as prophesied, they all leave his side. And Jesus is taken into custody. And in verse 63, we read, now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously smoke, spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people both chief priests and scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said, it is as you say. Your attention, please, are first of three who think the world would be a better place if Jesus was dead is the Jewish Sanhedrin. 71 individuals, 71 modeled after how Moses structured the governance of the nation of Israel, 71 with Moses as the 71st, allowed there to never be a tie vote. There was always that 
uh, chief among equals sense of someone has to have the final say. Someone has to have essentially the ability to say, well, that's lovely. I've heard all what you have to say. Here's what we're going to do. In this day, at this time, the 71st vote uh, basically went to the high priest, whoever was in the position of high priest, a, a position that had to be ratified by Rome. Rome, which had subjugated Israel, but had the style, as they would spread out around the world, of allowing puppet governments to remain in their stead over the regions, over the areas. Uh, they let the Sanhedrin kind of day to day, still pretend they were in charge, but, but Rome very carefully kept uh, in charge of who was in that seat of power, the high priest. And by this time, all of those priests and scribes and Pharisees who ended up filling out the other 70 positions were basically the aristocracy, the who's who. They had the clout. They had the connections. They had the opportunity. And they basically kept themselves in charge. What we just read sort of glosses over and gives the 30,000-foot view of what amounted to three different phases of the religious trial, separated by a night's sleep. For you'll notice, as we came into the new chapter, it said, as soon as it was day. That's a key detail. We will come back to that. As soon as it was day. When you look at the harmony of the Gospels, you find Jesus immediately upon arrest taken straight to the, the house of a shadowy figure who looms large in the New Testament. And his, his fingerprints are everywhere, although you can't find an actual job that he has that would allow him to have the power he does. And his name is Annas. Annas. Annas, we're told, is where Jesus was taken the moment he was finally arrested. Now, this had been brewing and looming for a while. For several years, this clash and confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders had been really kind of like boiling, 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 right? 180, 190, 200. Finally, and it's like it's finally frothed over where they were looking. How can we betray him? How can we get him? Because the, the people, they seemed to love him, which was really the problem. You see, the reason that the Jewish leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus was because they were threatened by him. First of three takeaway truths. They felt threatened, threatened by uh, who he was, threatened by his popularity, threatened by the fact that people loved to listen to him and they didn't respect them. And we know this exactly because Matthew 27, 18 says, Pilate saw through the lies and knew that they had handed 27, 18 him over because of, say it with me, envy. Now, they had the trumped up charges. Formally, their ratified uh, agreement Internally, why he needed to die was blasphemy, that you being a man have made yourself God, which they got Jesus to say by self-incriminating himself, which read the Old Testament, you were never forced to testify against yourself. As in our day today, uh, which our system of jurisprudence is very much based on the ideals and ethics of the Judeo-Christian worldview. So how things were framed back then this is really how our civilization was, was put together. You did not. You could be silent at your own trial. But they said to Jesus, who are you? They, Tell us what you've done. Tell us more about yourself. And he kind of calls them out on it. Shouldn't you be telling me why I've been arrested? It's not really how this works. I don't want to tell you how to do your job here. And for his uh, rewards, he would be punched in the face. And he continued to politefully, respectfully point out breaches in their protocol and the inconsistencies and hypocrisies in their own life. Do you understand what's happening? They are trouncing and trampling and doing donuts in the law of Moses that is the basis of why they want him put to death. Not historically awesome, right? This does not really make a lot 
of sense. You guys are saying you're all for this, but Jesus is sort of nudging them like, you realize the hypocrisy here. And, and one of the rules that Moses' uh, commands had laid out that God gave through Moses was that if anyone's going to be con convicted of a capital crime and his life's going to be taken from them, you have to have a day in between the day of the verdict, breach, guilty, and the sentencing. And that day, all of the Sanhedrin was meant to give a day over to fasting so that at any point, mercy might prevail as they sought God and coming, sleeping on it, right? So no one's hot and bothered, that they're all cool and that they can say, and if even, if even one false uh, not guilty was given, you couldn't reverse that. But you could reverse a guilty to a not guilty. Pretty beautiful. So they had the trial illegally by night, right? And then they all said, let's just all go to our houses for at least five minutes. Then we'll come back together as soon as the, the like 1159, like as soon as it's, right, it's, it's now a new day. Now we can say it wasn't today that we agreed to. So Annas is the first person take, they took him to. Annas is not the high priest. Annas is the father-in-law of the current sitting high priest. Annas was high priest. And then several of Annas' sons were high priest. And then Annas' daughter's husband, Caiaphas, is the current high priest. So why, when Jesus is arrested, was he not taken to Caiaphas' house first? Because Annas is the godfather. Annas is the power broker. Annas is the one in charge. And Annas had some beef with Jesus. Remember on Jesus' um, first trip into the temple after he was baptized successfully endured the time in the wilderness and then proclaimed himself to be the Messiah and began ministering? Do you remember one of the first things he did? He flipped over some tables in the temple. And on Palm Sunday, after his triumphal entry, he returned and did it again. The temple treasury area where all of the animals for sacrifice were bought and sold and money was exchanged from one currency to another had a nickname. Its nickname was Annas's Bazaar. Annas's Bazaar. He held the pocketbook on this whole enterprise. Now, again, Jesus didn't do it because he thinks it's wrong for a church to sell merchandise. Like he's going to go flip over any church that has church t-shirts and books. Like, oh, how dare you in the name of the Lord. He's like, hold on a second, chill, chill. chill. <laughs> You're like, finally, someone's addressing the obvious elephant in the room. All right. All right. <laughs> they were blessing the people by making this ministry open to them. If you're coming on foot from Bethlehem or from Nazareth or further, as people would even come from Ethiopia to attend these feasts, and you wanted to bring a lamb to give to God as a sacrifice, you do not want to have to do a road trip on foot with a lamb, OK? So it's really awesome that they had a bunch of great lambs there as a temple. What was historically not lovely was the fact that over time they went, dude, we got a captive audience. People will pay anything we charge. We're pretty much printing money here. And so they were upping, 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 and ripping people off who wanted to worship God. And that, not the fact that they were selling in this area, is what Jesus was incensed about. Secondly, uh, if you came from other parts of the Roman Empire, what kind of money would you bring with you? Roman money, right? Remember, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. He said, give me a coin. Whose inscription? Because they said, should we pay taxes? He goes, give me a coin. Whose image is that? Caesar, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what's God's. Awesome. Jesus is freaking Je Jedi Yoda, bro. Like, he is just, you cannot trick this guy. Because technically, God made Caesar and Caesar's coin, OK? God owns it all. Um, so uh, you could not bring a coin with Caesar's image into the temple area, because they would view that as a graven image 
prohibited in the Ten Commandments. So the likeness to Caesar was offensive to the Jewish understanding of how to honor God. And so they would not let you buy that sheep, which was now rip off prices, all right, like buying food in the airport. Don't do it. And um, also, I vowed to mention Disneyland in every sermon in the series, just from personal symmetry. So let me just say, try and find a drinking fountain in Disneyland. If anyone from Disney is listening, uh, not only do you have too few, but they are all poorly maintained, OK? They dribble. Have you noticed this? I'm like, this is what I want, my four-year-old putting his mouth on the metal, because you literally have that much water coming out. Everything else is perfect in Disneyland, but your water fountains. Why? We have a commemorative Tinkerbell cup for your water. We would love to offer it to you for a price of $17.99, right? <laughs> Courtesy of Visa, um, which is how memories are made. Ka-ching, 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 all right? So, you can't find a water fountain, so you're going to end up buying something. That's the idea. You can't use the Roman coin, so we need to exchange your local currency for our temple currency again. Now they're making money on the exchange. They're making money on the land. And then here's the worst part of it all. The Bible says, give God your best. And every year, we take a year-end offering, and all we ask is for us all to consider what's our best. And every week, the beauty, the beauty of tithing is we get to give our best, our first and best 10%. And that's a beautiful idea. But they were saying to people who bought, brought a lamb, so, so if you wanted to use your lamb that you did carry and not the temple lamb, they had these temple inspectors who would look at it and go, ooh, you want to give God that sickly beast? <laughs> like, pretty much you want to go to hell, <laughs> right? And they would make people feel bad about it and pretend they saw a spot on the back of it. And so they would force them to go into this whole process. This is all anise. And Jesus was upsetting and showing the ugliness of that. So, 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 so what are we to do when we see a new breaking news thing about this scandal and this in the church? We know that there's, 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 there's sin in the church today, just like there was on that day. But that's not what Jesus wants. And not all of us want to lead that way. You don't hear breaking news, pastor's faithful to his wife. Pastor preaches for decades and teaches his people through the Bible, and people are saved. Well, put that on my Facebook wall. See, I knew it. The church is such a scam. <laughs> the sensational selves. And Jesus is quietly, boldly leading his people in the midst of a world where there still is brokenness, even in the saved, even in those who lead. They were threatened by him, so he has to go. So Annas. Caiaphas, and then they formally, quickly, so they can get the notary in and take the photo. We all agree, guilty, guilty, guilty. Got to die for blasphemy. Then they go to Pilate and go, hey, this guy, totally the worst, uh, forbids to pay taxes to Caesar. Wait, that's not the charge you agreed to 10 minutes ago. I thought it was for blasphemy. I thought it was because he was going to tear down the temple and build it up in three days, which he was actually metaphorically saying about his body. But they're now trying to bill him as some sort of arsonist and terrorist and public enemy number one and threat to Caesar, which he is not. The back end of a Jesus follower is a better citizen of Caesar than a person who is not. But they were threatened by him. And Immediately, Pilate switches gears and sends him off to Herod. Hot potatoes the situation. He could smell the stink on this whole thing. And so he, he goes, Jesus is, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think who would be a great guy to put him to death for you? Herod, right? As it turns out, he's in town for the feast. So off Jesus goes to Herod. We pick it up in uh, verse 6 of 23. When Pilate heard that Galilee was mentioned on the, the case jacket, he asked if he was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he immediately sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. 
Now when Herod saw Jesus, check this out, check this out, check this out. He was exceedingly glad. I, I underlined that. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him to Herod. And Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, this is so creepy, that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously, they had been at enmity with each other. So Herod, too, at the end of the day, makes the same decision the Jewish leaders made. We're getting rid of Jesus. Why? Herod's reason was different. He did so because Jesus was unwilling to entertain him, because he wouldn't entertain them. He wouldn't come into the court and dance and sing and, and be the, the monkey that Herod wanted him to be. Herod didn't want change in his life. He didn't want, he didn't want anything disrupted, but he loved the idea of a little religiousness here. Oh my goodness, I love the goosebumps I get whenever they play that song. Oh my gosh, yes, God. Oh, Jesus, I've heard of that guy. And he says, I'm obsessed with Jesus. He says to all of his friends, oh my gosh, Pilate just wrote me. And he said that Jesus is being tried and we can have a, have a hand in it. Anybody want to see Jesus? Okay. And so he puts the turkey leg down and wipes his face and gets the guy who, who passes out the grapes to sit down for a second. And the juggler goes over to his little bench and he's like, I'm obsessed with this guy, Jesus. Oh my gosh, it's like avocado toast and like Lululemon leggings that make my butt look so good. It's like <laughs> Jesus is like an oat milk latte to him. He's just this, this current fixation. Like I'm, I'm so into Jesus. Here's the thing about Jesus. He doesn't do birthday parties. I saw in the Rolling Stone magazine this week a story that caught my eye just as I was looking through this message, literally studying about Herod and popped up. It said, it said, the lavish, top secret world of private gigs. That's some good clickbait right there, man, right? Check. The article is all about how there's this like lo-fi scene where if you're super wealthy, it's almost like it used to be enough to have a private jet, but now, no, it's like, dude, who performed at your birthday party, you know? And, uh, and talks about what you can pay and how there's brokers that can negotiate. If, if you want, if your kid's having a bar mitzvah and you want Beyonce at it, like you could literally pay for that, but you got to really pay. I mean, it's, we're talking to have 40 minutes of JLo is 1.25 million plus 500K, 500K for travel expenses. We're talking about uh, getting Bob Dylan or Arcade Fire or Alicia Keys to show up at your kid's birthday party on a stage you have built in the backyard. Half a million dollars for Ricky Martin if it's local and he can drive from Los Angeles, uh, and, and on it goes. This didn't even stop during the pandemic. $100,000 to have your kid on his birthday have Sting come on and serenade for, for, for whatever, Leon Bridges, Keith Urban, Christina Aguilera, One Republic. And I'm, of course, I'm not you know, mocking any of these for doing it. Uh, this is probably good stewardship. But, but to think about, to think about, I'm going to pay a million dollars now so that Rod Stewart or John Mayer can come in for this concert, this concert where they're going to take everyone's phones away so no one can prove it happened. And they have kind of plausible deniability about it. And you're thinking, Levi, that's too expensive. I know, it gets crazy. Bruno Mars charges as much as $4 million for a private show to, to sing for 20 people. And you're like, that's too much money. I can't do it. Well, good news. Uh, Coolio, 
Naughty by Nature and Vanilla Ice are available at a very discounted, steeply discounted. <laughs> I am pleased to report. And that is basically Herod's, how Herod views Jesus. Like, I love the idea of a little Jesus in here. He was the same way with John the Baptist before Jesus. And I don't think any of the desire is, is, is wrong. I think there's some sense in which Herod deep down knows that all of his money and all of his buildings, but you need to know about the Herod family. By the way, Herod's not a name, it's a title. So Herod, when you see Herod all through the Bible, you're like, that seems to be, that guy seems to be everywhere. Right? It's a whole family, right? And Herod's the title. And the, the chief of them all is Herod the Great, who tried to get rid of Jesus when Jesus was a baby. And Herod was this tiny little short guy with this big ego, which is why he spent so much of his life building big buildings, right? Like giant lifted truck, to totally not compensated for anything with your big lifted truck. That's, that's, that's Herod, right? And, and so he spent his life with this, this giant ego trip, killing anybody he thought was a threat to him. Um, and, and his descendant is this Herod that killed John the Baptist, but first wanted to hear a Bible study from him. He, I'd be real careful. I'm usually pretty careful with people who every time it's best, best I've ever heard. Oh my gosh, you're such a man of God. And oh my gosh. And every time, because those are usually the same people who are telling everybody everything wrong about you six months later when they're somewhere else. Um, and, and that's kind of this, this huge, fervent emotion. We're not looking for that. We're not about that. We're about that quiet, that long suffering, that show me with your faithfulness, not with your mouth. Right? So Herod wanted John the Baptist to come and do a Bible study for him. In fact, this is, this is crazy. You should, you should read the whole thing on your own. It's Mark chapter 6. Herod feared John the Baptist, knowing he was a just and holy man. And he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things. He felt all kind of feels. And he heard him gladly. Just like the, that story Jesus told of the parable of the seed that gets sown. And the one... Seed just jumps up like, I love God so much. I love God so much. I love God so much. But it's all about what God can do for you, how God can entertain you, how God can be like an ATM machine to you. And the problem is that if your relationship with God is all about what you, you can receive from him and not who he is to you, then you're basically Herod wanting Jesus to come in and walk on water on my swimming pool. I got a hydro flask. Can you turn it into Cabernet? And you'll be the first leaving like a, a rat running out of a fleeing ship when he gives you what you need and not what you want, which is almost always hard things that develop us. And so our relationships uh, with God can't be based on what he does, but on who he is. And Herod gets rid of Jesus the moment he no longer is serving him, just like he cut John the Baptist's head off, by the way, at a birthday party. The one who he loved to listen to the sermons and, and didn't just notice him now and Pilate have an alliance that therefore I'd be real careful about a relationship that's built on the rejection of Jesus. So here comes now our hot potato, Jesus, back to Pilate, who all he wanted to do was get out of rejecting Jesus. But they won't let him. Now you're like, why won't they let him? Because when, when you read the rest of the stories, you find out Pilate actually tells them, I will turn a blind eye if you stone him which is the preferred manner of execution for the Jews. But the Jewish leaders, even when Pilate gave them, I'll, I'll wink at you. He said, you go put him to death your way. I won't, I won't make a fuss during the feast. I don't want a rebellion. I just actually want you to leave me alone. 
Pilate didn't want to be in Jerusalem. He wanted to hang out at Caesarea, his place by the sea. This was just, he was putting his time in, biding his time. Eventually, Tiberius will give me a better gig. I'm going to get out of here, man. I don't want to stay here. But I finally worked this hard to be a governor. And, and he, he wanted out. So he's like, dude, I'll let you stone him. But they're like, no. Why? Because they knew if they put Jesus to death, the people would never tolerate it. Because pe- Jesus had the people's hearts. They wanted to get Pilate to do their dirty work for them. And ironically, they ended up fulfilling Jewish prophecy, which said that the Messiah would die a death of piercing, not a death of stoning. Psalm 22, read it sometime. It's awesome. It talks about Jesus being lifted up. We love ourselves from Psalm 23, but you don't get Psalm 23 without Psalm 22. We don't get to enjoy this. That's why Good Friday matters. Like, I'm not going to Good Friday. I'm just going to go to Easter Sunday. Let me tell you, you don't get Easter Sunday without going through the cross. You don't get to the empty tomb without Jesus going into the tomb. And that's what's so powerful about the look back. That's what's so powerful about remembering. That's what's so powerful about first going to Gethsemane and then going to Skull Hill so that when you stand at the empty tomb and go, he is risen, it means something different because you understand the bad news that gives you context for the good news. So Pilate ends up rejecting Jesus. Why? We're almost done. Because it would cost him. Pilate ends up letting Jesus, he thinks he could wash his hands of it. I'm going to have him put to death, but I want you to know I'm doing this under protest. I'm getting rid of Jesus, but I don't want to. I, he's conflicted. Pilate, of all three of them, breaks my heart the most. I, I do feel for Herod, because he genuinely seems to actually like Jesus. But I really, really, really am heartbroken over Pilate because their interactions are chilling. If you read verse 13 of chapter 23, it says, he called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. He said to them, you brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. Indeed, having examined him in your presence, I find no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod. I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him, and I'm going to release him. That should be it, right? Shouldn't that be how the end of the story goes? The person in charge says not guilty, slams the gavel, case dismissed. Y'all go home and bother someone else. But we know that's not how the story ends. It ends with Jesus nailed to a cross. And why did Pilate eventually get blackmailed and extorted and given? Because he knew doing the right thing, which deep down inside he knew was right, was letting Jesus go because he was an innocent man. And he was scared out of his mind about the fact that he thought that Jesus might actually be divine. Because he had seen a lot of condemned people in his life, begging for their life, promising, I don't know, you promise me I'll spring, I'll set up, I'll change, I'll do different. Jesus is just like clearly in charge here. Where are you from? My kingdom's not of this world. That's unsettling. (laughs) Don't you know I could put you to death? Yeah, but you have no power over me unless it was given to you. So the actual sin goes with those who brought you here. Uh, Brought me here. Uh, And then just as he's about to finally make the decision to put Jesus to death, even though he doesn't want to, you're like, why, 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 why? Remember what I told you? Pilate wants another job. Pilate wants to get out of here. Pilate wants to be more powerful in the Roman Empire. And he had worked for a long time to get to where he was. He had gotten in trouble several times leading the Jewish people because they were really difficult to lead. And uh, they had gone over his head to Caesar. 
and blackmailed him and made Caesar get, because like, you just, like, so Pilate's like irritated with them, but he can't do what he actually wants to do, which would be like kill them all, because Tiberius doesn't want that. He wants peace. There's this Pax Romana peace through the empire. He doesn't want war. He wants subjugated colonies to be a source of money and taxation to build the empire, right? So he wants Pilate, do your job. If I keep getting disciplinary reports, eventually, not only am I going to not upgrade you to a better city, I'm going to kill you, bro. So keep the peace. So Pilate's in a hard situation. And just as he's about to say, finally, OK, fine, we'll kill him. Even though I know he's guilty and not guilty. And I know he's freaking me out with that Jesus look he gives me of like love and stuff <laughs> and kindness. And he looks right through me. Never felt like I feel talking to him. Pilate's wife comes bursting into his room. Pilate, oh my gosh, I just had the craziest dream about him. He's totally innocent. You should not kill him. Honey, Mrs. Pilate. <laughs> so what he knows he should do and what it could cost him. To, 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 to make the right decision about Jesus could cost me everything I've ever thought I wanted my life to be. And in the end, he washes his hand of Jesus, gives the command, and away he goes. Down the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, with a cross on his bleeding back. Now, I don't tell you any of this, and we're, we're getting close to the end here, very close, to heap ridicule on. I think the wrong way to read these accounts would be like, the Jewish leaders are dumb. Herod's dumber. Pilate's dumbest, right? Like, to, to feel like somehow we're reading this in order to feel good about ourselves for how much better we are than them. What I've been on my knees about this week is, God, where is the Pilate in me? How am I like the Jewish leaders? And how easy it is for me to become Herod. Because John said in 1 John 2.16 that only three things come the devil's way against humanity. These three are our downfall perpetually. Why doesn't the devil mix it up? Because they keep working. If you're fishing and the fish are biting, you don't just change bait, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene, he put it this way. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting, this is 1 John 2.16 in the message, and wanting to appear important has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from him. The world, with all of its wanting, 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 is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. I see in the Jewish leaders the lust of the flesh. It'll never be enough. I want more. I want more power. I want more money. And I will do anything I need to do to keep it. The lust of the flesh. And what does that lead to? All you ever need is more. More of that. More of that. More of that. It will never fill up the hole inside it. When is enough going to be enough? And what will you forfeit on the way to getting it? Because again, they're giving up their adherence to Moses' law in order to preserve Moses' law. 
It's like the, 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 the parent that is on the road 300 days of the year and is never there for their kids because they weren't provided for well by their parents. And so now they're never there so that their kids can have a better life than they had. And they don't have the epiphany that your kids don't just need more and more, they need more of you. So to trounce the law of Moses and do donuts in it, to, keep, to preserve the law of Moses, you're like, it's like Breaking Bad, the, the, one of the most well-written arcs I've ever heard of. This guy who's doing any, what, what, what is he doing? To, to provide for his family after his death from cancer, he destroys his family and becomes a monster in the process. Then there's Herod, the lust of the eyes, seeing Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see something razzle-dazzle. Give me a good sermon. Give me a good word. Give me, give me something that can give me some, some of that Holy Ghost goosebumps. You know I love that good feeling every Easter. Give me them of that feel good. I just need a little splash of Jesus. Ah, aqua de Gio. I love it. Ah. Oh, man, I had a good cry. Ah. But never changed. Looked at the law of liberty. Saw exactly what happened, but did nothing about what I saw. Never repented. Self-deceived. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. Pride of life, pilot what I've built. Where, what, I've come so far to be here. Now, is it, is it fulfilling you? What breaks me the, my heart the most about Pilate is church history records that he will get deposed eventually. Nothing will ever be enough for the Jewish leaders, by the way. And in, in his place of exile, he tragically takes his life, which is just one more subject that we have to consider in our world without Jesus. Because not only is the estimated toll that the church is going away, funding the food banks and the homeless shelters around the world $2.76 trillion, but there's other intangible costs, like the, what it would do to an already strained mental health system to have every church in the world gone overnight. Every church of Jesus Christ gone, because there's no church gathering for Jesus that didn't exist, right? And already in the world, every 40 seconds, someone takes their life. And to think about the fact that, I, I, know, we, I know we don't have a steeple at, at our church, but I love the, the heartbeat of why steeples existed, so that no where you were in town, you saw a building saying, hey, come on in here. We're pointing to God, but come on in here. Come on in here. Come on in here. Come on in here. And the, the toll, I, I have a family member who needed mental health help and was looking for uh, the, the ability to get in and the, the weight to get into a, uh, a psychologist that could help him, the weight to get into a psychiatrist. It is it's unfathomable to think, in, especially in big cities, the wait time just to get mental health help when you need it. And, and to think of churches that, that I'm not saying we're psychologists or psychiatrists, but it's places where someone will listen. It's places where someone will pray for you. It's places where we'll be a family to you. We'll be community to you. We will care for you. We'll talk about hard subjects. We will point you to Jesus. We will fight for you. Pilate takes his life, despair. The pride of life. He fought for the pride of life, wanting, wanting, wanting. And, and all three of these are all at times in, in my heart, in my life. I, I think it's so easy to end up like the Jewish leaders, thinking that if I give in to the flesh, I'll be happy when all that waits is death. I think about Herod and how easy it is. I learned from Herod the, 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 the danger of the wrong alignment. You think about Herod and Pilate's friendship now. What something's built on, what a friendship's built on, is what you're going to have to build it on. It's why so many relationships built on infidelity, shockingly, don't do great. 
They're built on lies. So to a friendship, what, that, what, what, if, if every time you're around someone, it's just gossip, 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 gossip. If every time you're around someone, it, what attracts you to some? What attracts you to certain places? What attracts you to certain situations? Herod and Pilate, it chills me, became friends from that day forward. But the foundation of a thing is all you have to ride out the storms of this life. And then thirdly, Pilate. To look at Pilate and to not ask the question, how am I not listening to the Holy Spirit who sends little agents of rescue along the way? How many opportunities did, did God give him? Come on, Pilate. Come on, Pilate. Come on, Pilate. You're, like, Come on. you're just like cheering for Pilate. Pilate, do the right thing. But you should be asking the question, what is the Holy Spirit saying to me that I'm ignoring? Now, the beautiful news about all of this message is that you can't get rid of Jesus. They did. They did. And he came back. <laughs> we'll talk about it on Easter. I hope you'll come. Peter, and we're going we're gonna to close with this story about a woman who bought a lottery ticket and something Peter said. So I promised um, you, you're, on, you're almost out of here. Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter who denied Jesus, who failed Jesus, who lied about Jesus, cut an ear off, under, misunderstanding what Jesus wanted him to do. When we don't follow Jesus' instructions, we make messes. Forgiven, restored, redeemed, and finally at a place where he was no longer living out of his shadow side, trying to be important and have enough and appear better than John and James, right? He gives a sermon with all the Jewish leaders listening, knowing Pilate somewhere listening, Herod, word's going to get to Herod. And he summarizes the events that we've been talking about, the attempt to get rid of Jesus, which was unsuccessful. And he puts it this way. At this time, this Jesus, he says, this Jesus, following the deliberate and well-thought-out plan of God, was betrayed by men who took the law into their own hands, ouch, and was handed over to you. And you pinned him to a cross, the nation of Israel at large. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And they killed him. Someone say, but God. And a little louder like you mean it. But God. Dev the devil did his worst. Untied the death ropes and raised him up, because death was no match for him. They thought they had taken out the trash. They thought they had washed their hands of him. They thought putting a gorgeous robe and treating him cruelly could get rid of him. But on the third day, I had read this story in the news about LaCadra Edwards. It was November of 2021. LaCadra Edwards was in a grocery store buying a lottery ticket, as she did every so often. Just as she was, she had put her credit card in. You know those machines they have right with the buttons right by the, you were nodding a little too, a little fast for that, you sinners. Um, she had put her credit card in. She was about to make her selection. She always picked this real cheap lottery ticket. It was like her little thing. And right as she was about to hit it, this guy came past her a little too close and shouldered her, like fully like hockey checked her. And she said she was smashed into the machine. And when she did so, she pushed the wrong button. She was irritated for a number of reasons. Number one, he didn't say sorry. Just kept walking. Like it hadn't even happened. Like he didn't even see her. Like she wasn't even a human. The exact opposite, by the way, of everything that Jesus stands for. Jesus sees us and says, I see you. So we can walk the, the, the streets of this world and see those who are cast aside, the stranger, the foreigner, the forgotten, the elderly, the maimed, the handicapped, and say, I see you. And so does God. Not only did he not even see her, just kept walking. But when he had bumped her, he had made her hand push the wrong button. 
a more expensive ticket, a $30 lottery ticket. Didn't even know that was a thing. And uh, she took her ticket out, was so embarrassed and flustered, she just got into her car straight away. And she said she didn't even scratch the thing until she was driving down the 405 freeway in Los Angeles. If you've ever driven on the 405 freeway, you do not need to be scratching a lottery ticket driving down this thing, okay? It needs your undivided attention, honey. She scratches it, she's driving, she's still kind of teary about what had just happened. And, and she said she looked down and gasped, almost drove off the road when she saw that she had won $10 million. pulled over, got the app out to confirm it. Indeed, this was a $10 million payout for a ticket she didn't even want. She's crying, interviewed. She was asked, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going to buy a house because I've never owned my own home. And then I'm going to start a nonprofit because I want to help people. I tell you that story because I feel like it's just, it wraps up so nicely what we're talking about. The rudeness of, that we've read in these texts it was all a part of God's plan to work that in, that roughness in, that horrible behavior in, that, that sin in, that darkness in, so that he could untie death for us all. He allowed the rudeness. He allowed the roughness, the horror, the worst it can get. And not only does that prove the triumph of the gospel, but it also exposes us to a brand new way to look at the way we've been badly treated. The hard things that have happened to you and the dark things that have happened to me, we can believe that every single one of those things is all leading towards a payout of glory, is all leading to a payout of God's plan, is all working towards us being more like Christ Church. I came to encourage you that all the rough treatment of this world, all the dark things and the hard things we face, come on, it's, I got 10 million reasons to praise him. Does anybody feel thankful today for the way that God has worked in your story? And he even now is going to untie what death has planned to untie resurrection power, to untie a brand new beginning. They spoke divorced over you. They spoke cancer over you. They spoke unwanted over you. But God says, I see you and I love you. I have a plan for you. And I'm working all things together for the good, for those who love him. We've imagined today what the world would look like without Jesus. But I want us to end asking the question and walk out into the streets of this world to turn off this broadcast and ask the question, what could the world look like if we would fully follow Jesus? What could the world look like? Look what all that has been done by followers of Jesus. But now the baton's in our hands. What will we do? We are now ambassadors. We now have the name of Christ. May we bear it well. So Father, we look to you. Show us, God, where the little pilot is in me. How are we like Herod? How are we like Caiaphas and Annas? Thank you, Jesus, for stepping foot into our world. We see you in the wilderness. The devil said to turn rocks into stone, and you refuse the lust of the flesh. Then the devil made you see the kingdoms of this world and said he would give them all to you if you just bowed down and worship him. And you, Father, gave your son the strength to overcome the power of the lust of the eyes. And when the devil took you to a high place and said, throw yourself down, all the people will see the angels slowing your descent and they'll follow you. You saw through the lie of the pride of life. 
So Father, you through your spirit can today give us the power to overcome all of the snares the wicked one is putting in our paths. May we not eat just the bread of this world for the things of this world are passing away. We choose to satisfy our souls with every word that comes from the mouth of God. Today, church, as all of us who, like Jesus, need to go through the temple, turning over some tables, and the tables aren't in the atrium of our church. The tables are in the atrium of our hearts, for we are the temple. And if today you would say there's some things that need to get flipped over inside your own heart as you follow Jesus, could I just ask that you would repent and show that to him, responding to the Holy Spirit by just raising a hand up? If you're saying, God, you've shown me secret sin, and I don't want to be held back. The day will reveal it when we stand before you, but I want to do business with you now. If there's some sin in your life, you just say, God, it might be small. It might be just a little jealousy, a little lust. The point is it's little now, but it won't stay little. It'll grow. But if you can deal with it today, let the Holy Spirit deal with it today, you can be healed. Thank you, Father, for the honesty and just the genuine sense of revival I feel. All across our church, response to you, a church online, podcast audience. You're doing business with your people. You're purifying your bride. You want us fit and fast, for there is much to be done. Thank you, Jesus. You can put your hands down. And now I want to pray for a different audience. I want to pray for those who need to give their lives to Jesus today. Seeing this microcosm of Pilate's journey, we just see, here's your chance, here's your moment to respond. And, and we thank you, Jesus, that you're so good to give us those opportunities. All the way to the way of judgment, your word says that you say, I say to the wicked, repent. Turn from your wicked way. God is not itching and looking forward to shoving a lightning bolt down your throat. He let his son be slaughtered so you could be set free. If you're here and you need to open the door of your heart to Jesus, not as a juggler or an entertainer, but as a Lord, a king, your God, the one who made you, who you are humiliating and humbling yourself before him to say, I can't save myself. I've made a mess of my life. But I want you to come in and be my king. In good days and bad days, I'm going to trust your lead. I'm going to be a sheep. You're going to be the shepherd. I'm going to be clay. You're going to be a potter. If that's what you would like to do, I want to pray with you to give your heart to Jesus. Could you say this out loud with me? Church, say it with us. Mean it in your heart. And on the authority of the word of God, you will be saved. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm lost. I need you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for his death and his resurrection. I put the weight of my soul into your hands. In Jesus' name.